This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi there, I'm Lale Arikogli, and this is Women Who Travel. Today, I'm chatting with author and journalist Laura Trithui about traveling to the deepest parts of the ocean and experts' recent attempts to create a giant map of the five oceans of the world. Laura was new to ocean travel when she began her research. She didn't even know she would be seasick. Now, she calls herself an ocean journalist a glamorous but also slightly mystifying term. I came up with the term myself, so so I guess it needs clarifying. I noticed that the things that I was writing about, I just kept coming back to the ocean again and again. So I just kept writing about various ocean topics, fishing, shipwrecks, scientists, fisheries, whatever it was, I was always coming back to the ocean. And then I realized that that was the lens that I just was seeing the world through. And so eventually I thought that this was, you know, a big enough category for me to to take on for my entire life. I didn't grow up by an ocean. I actually grew up by a great lake, so Lake Ontario, that sometimes acts like an ocean, but it's not an ocean. And I was really romantic about the ocean for a long time when I was growing up. So I read, you know, Joshua Slocum's Sailing Alone Around the World. I love Charles Darwin's journals about going to the Galapagos. And so sailing was really what, what happened first. It was kind of the lure of travel The ocean was just sort of a conduit for crossing borders, meeting new people, exploring new lands. After learning to sail on Lake Ontario, Laura moved to San Diego. And it is way nicer to sail there. Over time, you know, that curiosity about sailing and crossing oceans morphed into this curiosity about, you know, what was going on underneath the boat. So I would meet various people who were into diving or they were into different parts of the ocean. And I'd sort of get interested in the animals that were beneath the boat and like the historical and archaeological stories of the sea. And so it just kind of kept expanding from sailing. The ocean is this place of great mystery that most of us I think, find quite frightening. It's also considered, from what I understand, to be the place where life began. Can you kind of explain in basic terms 
how that came to be. In the 1970s, this crazy transition happened in our scientific knowledge about how life began. So for the longest time, we thought that life was photosynthetic, so that life could only get energy from the sun. And then there was this groundbreaking expedition that happened near the Galapagos, actually, where a bunch of geologists, geophysicists were out on a ship and they were scanning the seafloor and they managed to come across these hydrothermal vents, which are basically like underwater hot springs, kind of rifts in the seafloor where a lot of hot magma is mixing with cold seawater, creating this burst of chemical energy. And all of a sudden they found all these animals clustered around the rift in the seafloor. And there's this sort of famous exchange that happens when they discovered that, where I think the person who was piloting the ROV, which is sort of like this underwater camera, was like, isn't everything supposed to be dead on the seafloor? Because <laughs> there's a lot of stuff down here. And this was literally the moment in 1977 where all of a sudden they realized that life could also be chemosynthetic, that we could get energy from chemicals as well. And this sort of filled in a lot of holes in how we understood life to have evolved on Earth because people had some, you know, kind of crazy ideas about maybe apes like crawling out of the sea or something like that. But that it actually turned out that all life came from this like chemical interaction down at the bottom of, of the ocean in the deep sea. When I was in Zanzibar and I went snorkeling, I'll never forget this moment when we were, you know, over relatively shallow water, watching all these incredible fish. And then suddenly there was this drop off, like an, a cliff that just went down into the darkness that we started swimming over. And it was one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen because it just showed me how little we know. It was like looking up into the night sky but it was down below. Mm -hmm. It's still so unexplored in a way that it seems like space isn't. Do you think there's like a lack of curiosity in the ocean and that's why you've been so drawn to it? Or is it just so hard to understand because it's so inhospitable to humans? So I wish I could tell you I was one of those um, ocean people who have no fear of the ocean. But when you say that you have that sort of deep fear of like the dark depths that, you know, there's just these big drop-offs into nothing, like that scares me too. It's easy to feel claustrophobic and easy to get disorientated as soon as it starts to get that little bit dark. And there's something too about hearing your own breath in your, in your head. You feel how fragile it is, how you're just down in the ocean and you can hear it going in and out, in and out. And yeah, it's very claustrophobic, very tight feeling. I think there's that deep psychological fear we have of the deep sea and we don't have that about outer space for some reason looking up at the stars seems less scary maybe because you can see it maybe because there's sort of religious connotations that up there is heaven and down in the bottom of the ocean is hell and death we have mapped the surface of mars and the moon and all these other planets perfectly but we've only mapped about 25 percent of the seafloor so we've had the tools and the technology to map the seafloor for years, but we still haven't done it. And so I sort of got interested in that lack of curiosity, like, why have we not done this? What are we missing out? And if we ever kind of finish the map, could we finally like close the gap between 
this disparity we have between space exploration and ocean exploration. The ocean occupies roughly 70% of the Earth's surface. Laura's book, The Deepest Map, The High Stakes Race to Chart the World's Oceans, investigates people who map the ocean. And to say that's no easy feat is a gigantic understatement. Well, it's such a motley crew of people who go out to, to map the sea. And they go out for months at a time on these big research vessels. And they're just sort of mowing the lawn, going back and forth, scanning the bottom of the ocean with sound. We use sonar to map the bottom of the ocean. That's why it takes so long. Ocean mappers sometimes admit that what they're doing is incredibly boring, where they're just like sitting in the bottom of a ship and they're watching a sonar ping go down to the bottom of the seafloor and then come back up again, and they're watching this landscape unscroll on the screen. I realized that I really liked mowing the lawn, and I really liked sitting there, and kind of the act of exploration and discovery was really exciting for me. Laura's reporting focuses on the work of a marine geologist, Cassie Bongiovanni who was just 25 when she got hired to be part of an expedition to map the deepest points of all the oceans. She's young, she's ambitious, she wants to do this cool thing that has never been done before in history. But she's also a little scared of doing this expedition because the team that was behind it was sort of like this unknown X-factor sort of team. It was headed by this multimillionaire private equity investor called Victor Vescovo, and he came up with this idea that he wanted to dive the deepest points of all five oceans. While I was interviewing Cassie Bongiovanni about ocean mapping, and I was going through all her iPhone pictures that she sent me and asking her questions, I realized that I was kind of having a significant block where I was like, I don't think I fully get what you're going through. Even though I call myself an ocean journalist, I hadn't actually spent like a significant amount of time at sea. Like I'd often gone out on like day trips and that kind of thing. And I started to feel a little bit nervous about that or like got a bit of an imposter syndrome. So I tried to get on a research vessel myself and go on an ocean mapping expedition. And the worst thing was, was that I wanted to do this at like the height of COVID. So it was like 2020, 2021. No one wants to let you on a ship at that point in time. All the research vessels in the U.S., they, they trimmed all their crew down to skeleton crews. So just like the bare minimum of people needed to operate the boat and conduct science. I waited around for a year. I watched like a lot of expeditions take place online, which you can do. Coming up, Laura's first expedition and how getting her sea legs wasn't exactly a cinch. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. 
She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far-off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforest of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple. 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Eventually, I got on board this ship, EV Nautilus. So the EV stands for Exploration Vessel Nautilus. A nine-day mapping cruise that was going to go up the coast from L.A. to Oregon. And they were heading for this area off of uh, California called Point Conception. And it's like this, this chin of California. And all these currents meet right there. And so it's really rough, really hard to map. You're really lucky if you get around it and there's no gale. And we were not very lucky. And it was so, so rough, like 13 foot waves and just like slam, slam, slam the whole way. So, so violent (laughs) that it was actually, we couldn't map for some of those days. So we actually kind of got let down what we're actually trying to do because the boat is making so much noise that we can actually properly map the bottom of the ocean. But It was incredible for me. Like, I was having the time of my life. (laughs) I was going to ask, how were you on those rough seas? I actually didn't know before I went out on that trip whether I actually was prone to seasickness. And you can't really control whether you're prone to seasickness or not. Like, you either kind of get it or you don't. And so I was worried that because I was an ocean journalist, what if I got terribly seasick and I had to stay in my cabin the whole time just, like, throwing up? And people on that cruise, they told me all kinds of horror stories. There were some really rough moments um, walking around. And the entire crew was like this really intense Ukrainian crew who were like the most tough, impervious men I have ever witnessed in my life. And I just remember at one point like walking down 
this hallway on the ship and like you could see the back of the ship just like heaving up and it would be sky and then ocean and sky and ocean we were tilting like 45 degree angle and I looked into the gym and there was this like Ukrainian man running on a treadmill and the, <laughs> the treadmill was that like also at a 45 degree angle and he was totally zipped up in sweats and I looked in the room and I felt like I was gonna throw up <laughs> And I ran upstairs and like looked out the window because I was like, how, how is he doing that? You're like, I can't even bear the visual of this man doing it, let alone the idea of being on the treadmill right now. Mm -hmm. That is extraordinary. So you didn't get seasick. Mm -hmm. And clearly you got the kind of, got a bit of a taste for it. Mm -hmm. There's a global initiative of scientists that launched a project in 2017 called Seabed 2030. They recently announced that they've mapped a quarter of the ocean floor. This grand plan to map the entire ocean by 2030. Who's it funded by? It's funded by the Nippon Foundation, which is Japan's largest philanthropic organization. And they've paid about $18 million to the, uh, the CBA 2030. But CBA 2030, they estimate that it's actually going to cost about $3 billion to $5 billion to get this map done. So the big question is like, where's the rest of the money going to come from? There's a lot of big questions hanging over whether this project can actually get pulled off in time. No country in particular is going to take on this big collective goal for all humanity. You know, we're, we tend to be quite focused on our own backyards. And, you know, most countries are, are mapping their waters for territorial reasons. So they're not, they're not going out and mapping international waters. One cooperative solution has been crowdsourcing around the world. Laura Trithui went on an amazing Arctic expedition to report on it. I found this group of Inuit hunters in Nunavut, which is like one of the territories of Canada where I'm from. And I, I took a bunch of planes. <laughs> I went, I flew from San Diego to Toronto to Winnipeg and then I got a really small plane and I flew up to this tiny community it's a hamlet I guess 3,000 some people on the Hudson's Bay and uh, went out with these Inuit hunters for a few days um, and I happened to arrive at the time of the beluga hunt so it's summertime it's the height of summer and all these belugas are swimming into the bay and everybody's chasing them. So like polar bears, killer whales and Inuit hunters are chasing them, uh, trying to get like blubber for the season. And the elders in the community were trying to get the young hunters to map the coastlines because the Arctic is phenomenally uncharted. The idea was that once they got these maps, they would share them around with the whole community and they would stop having these really critical accidents that they were having. They were having a lot of boating accidents where things weren't charted, weren't on the map. And then people would kind of like hit something and fly off into the water, like really dangerous landscape. Describe the Arctic to me. What does it feel like to be there? I feel like the cold has a really specific smell and feel to it. You know, I grew up in southern Canada and this... I mean, this just didn't feel like any Canada that I knew, you know, that I'd ever encountered. It was such a harsh terrain. So everything's really low. There's no trees. It's just tundra. And I felt like I could get lost at any moment, you know, that I could just like wander off and run into a polar bear or something like that. And it felt like I was kind of in a world without a safety net. 
Like sometimes, you know, your phone wasn't working. You couldn't really rely on your phone to get anywhere. It felt like I stepped into another world where I had to rely on other people to help me get through things or tell me where things were. It was just another world that I didn't know was sort of part of Canada. And it was like, it completely opened up my eyes. At the other end of the world, Laura describes the world's loneliest ocean. I mean, for a long time, we couldn't even agree what to call the Southern Ocean. A lot of people were calling it the South Atlantic or the Antarctic Ocean. And we finally figured out, okay, we're going to call it the Southern Ocean. Most people agree on that name. So that's the ocean sort of swirling around Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And there's no continent to kind of cut it off. So the winds just keep pushing the water around and it builds up these exceptionally high waves. So sailors, back in the age of sail, they used to go down there and they'd get on one of those high latitudes, like 40s, 50s, 60s, and they'd just hitch a ride on the waves all and kind of short circuit their way to a new continent. And then when diesel came in, like diesel run ships, they don't need to go down to the Southern Ocean to, you know, short track their way to another continent. So it's pretty empty a lot of the time. The people that are down there, you know, tend to not really want to be found. So you get Japanese whaling ships go down there where they can fish for whales or they can go whaling <laughs> without any sort of international bans restricting them. They can kind of do it out of sight where no one except for Greenpeace is sort of chasing them across the Southern Ocean. There's a moment in the book when the researcher Cassie Bongiovanni is embarking on a trip to map the Southern Ocean when the ship's crew are unpredictably nervous. It was just going to be five to six weeks of getting slammed around on the ship where you were literally farther away from anywhere else, anyone else in the entire world. You would have to blast off into space to get further away from civilization. And so some of the crew on board started to get like panic attacks before they got on the ship and had to take bed rest before they, they went out on this, this journey because it was just going to be them and the crew and this tiny ship for like six weeks at a time until they got to South Africa on the other side. Did they find the deepest point? They did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> How deep is it? The Southern Ocean. Oh my gosh, I don't remember off the top of my head how deep the Southern Ocean is. Everybody, it's not the deepest point in the entire okay. ocean. The deepest point in the entire ocean is in the Pacific, in the Mariana. You're talking about this crazy weather, and I'm thinking, is that why Drake's Passage is so treacherous? The portion of water that you have to pass through to get to Antarctica? Yeah, that is one of, that's part of the Southern Ocean. And yeah, that is one of the most notoriously hellish areas that you can go through. You know, you, you think of Everest as sort of the highest highs for the mountaineering community, getting through the Drake Passage getting around the tip of South America. That's like the ocean equivalent of Everest. If you get around that, that's like you've summited Everest in the ocean world. <laughs> and that's something a lot of tourists do because you have all those cruise ships that are going down there. Mm -hmm. I've yet to do it. Yeah. I've been as far, I've been <laughs> as, far as Patagonia and experienced that weather. And that was pretty wild. Mm -hmm. There are many shipwrecks. 
beneath the ocean's surface um, and they crop up in your book. Why are we fascinated with them? I guess just like shipwrecks are first off something to see. Like when you go down onto the seafloor, you can't necessarily see like ancient mining sites, but you can see a shipwreck. And there's so many millions of shipwrecks that are still down there. There's something like three million shipwrecks down on the seafloor. And we've only explored about 1% of them. So like that's the Titanics of the world we've explored and those Spanish galleons off Florida. But there's so many more out there. And during this one mapping expedition in the Indian Ocean where they were looking for the remains of the MH370, that plane that went missing, they found two more 19th century shipwrecks that nobody knew was out there while they were mapping the bottom. You know, I think like shipwrecks just kind of capture our attention in this this way. You know, the same way that we're sort of scared of the ocean and the deep, dark, scary places. Shipwrecks just kind of look like this, like cast off humanity. And um, they're covered in creepy crawly things. And it's it's kind of got like all the trappings of, you know, what we're afraid of down there, I think. Next up, submersibles and diving with underwater archaeologists in Florida. What if you could poke, prod, and explore the mysteries of nature from wherever you are? Hi, I'm Nate Hedgie, the host of Outside In, an award-winning podcast from New Hampshire Public Radio. We explore the fun, dangerous, oftentimes uncomfortable questions about the natural world. Like, what happens when climate change comes knocking at your door? Unfortunately, when you find out things that you don't want to hear, the question is how you swallow that. Or what happens to our bodies when we die? All of the germs and bacteria and everything is saying, okay, baby, we got to get rid of this person. (laughs) Outside In isn't just a show for thru-hikers and conservationists. It's a podcast for anyone who's ready to embrace their curiosity about the natural world and have fun doing it. You left us. You left us. (laughs) You left us. (laughs) But that's not what What I'm going to do. Listen every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Underwater tourism has been somewhat in the news this year due to the submersible tragedy that took place. Have you noticed that there's been a sort of increase in that sort of tourism? Was that something you started to notice when you were writing the book and researching it? I mean, clearly there's still, it's not like everyone's suddenly fascinated by the ocean floor, but it seems like there is, at least among billionaires, a bit more of a curiosity. And it didn't start with the Titan. It had been building for some time. We tend to hear more about billionaires and millionaires who are investing in going to space But there's a whole subset of millionaires and billionaires who have submarines on their yachts or they have sort of these little submersibles that you can like plunk in the water and go explore for the day. 
But then there's also this sort of subset of other people who want to be a little bit more rigorous or go a little deeper. And so there have been some really important donations from billionaires and millionaires to kind of found these research institutions. So like Eric Schmidt, the former Google CEO, he founded an institution, um, Mark Benioff. There was like a trend of people investing in ocean research. But because you had these sort of two subsets, there was a lot of scientists who were sort of skeptical of these billionaires and millionaires. Like, what are you guys doing here? Why are you kind of coming into our little like underfunded research world? And are you actually serious about it? Are you just here to kind of do some fun puttering around? Or are you actually going to seriously contribute? And then the Titan submersible happened, the implosion that happened this past summer. And there had been a lot of tension in the community around that Titan submersible because, you know, they weren't following a lot of rules and regulations that had been set out. And uh, a lot of people thought that what they were doing was kind of ethically sort of dubious. The fact that, you know, they were getting millionaires and billionaires to get onto this submersible to go visit, you know, the wreckage of the Titanic, you know, this place that's essentially a mass graveyard. There was a lot of like um, doubt about that and skepticism about that anyways. Like what's the point of continuing to visit the Titanic again and again and again when we've, you know, only mapped about 25% of the seafloor? And I had actually tried to get on board a submersible while writing this book. I was going to ask if you'd been on one. I still want to get on one. Uh, if somebody wants to invite me, I'd still, I'd still get on one. However, she did get to explore some pretty exceptional sites on the seabed in Florida. I'd never known before that there's basically a whole lost continent down on the seafloor. So just to give a bit of background to what I mean by that, about 8,000 some years ago, at the end of the last ice age, these glaciers melted, released a bunch of water into the ocean and covered up all these continental shelves. And those areas were really active for, for humans. You know, humans back then loved coastlines as much as we do today. And so, you know, there's no sort of Atlantis down on the floor of, you know, of the ocean, but there is like a whole continent down there of early human history that we've only started to uncover. And I think it's about equal to the size of South America. That's how much land we lost since then. And uh, it turned out that Florida is a real hotbed for this kind of underwater archaeology. So we were kind of two, three miles offshore. We were diving in like six to eight feet of water. And they were using this, this type of sonar to find these early mining sites of humans there. And every single one we dove, we dove, they had 18 different sites. Every single one we dove, we found evidence of human, human mining at those sites. It was exceptional. It was incredible. When you say human mining, when are we talking about and what, you know, what sort of technology was being used? Right. So these were 3,000-year-old sites, and they date them by, like, the level of sea level rise at that time. So they kind of figure out, okay, this, this was actually available to humans at that time. And these are, like, old quarry sites. 
So early humans in, in Florida were going around and sort of looking for rocks that they could fashion into arrowheads and that kind of thing. And so the rocks sort of break apart in a very specific way when humans are mining them in that, in that fashion. And so we were able to find them with this kind of sonar that identified, you know, like, okay, they've been cut in this specific way and they make this, this sonar signature in the water. What do you think we can learn about ourselves as we study the ocean more? When I'm in Florida and I'm diving these 3,000-year-old sites, like we're finding markers of, of our own future and what's going on with Florida right now. Or we're looking for shipwrecks and we're finding kind of the ancient history of sail down on the ocean. And so I felt like it was more like when we were mapping the ocean, we were really telling stories about ourselves. And then there was also so much that was linked up in the future about where we're going on this planet and mapping the seafloor, you know, figuring out where tsunamis are going to happen or how sea level rise is going to impact us or how climate change is going to play out, where we're going to get deep sea metals, whether mining is going to happen. Like there's there's the past and the future sort of all bound up in that. And then at the same time, there's also this huge mystery about where we all came from. So... Even though people think of the seafloor as this very dark, very deep, very scary place, probably the least human place that you could imagine on Earth, I saw a lot of humanity in it. One thing we haven't talked about so far is what can be produced from the bottom of the ocean. In recent years, this has been leading to new cosmetic products and even medical breakthroughs. But is there a risk of commercial exploitation when it comes to these discoveries? That's a big question in um, uh, international ocean treaties that are going on right now, like whether companies are going to be able to patent all this new biological information that we get from deep sea creatures that we haven't discovered yet. So, for instance, one of the most profitable drugs of all time, like an HIV drug, came from a sea sponge that was taken from Florida in the 1980s. And so the idea is that there could be a lot of cures, there could be a lot of just kind of unrealized potential in the animals that we have yet to discover or that we have discovered, but we haven't really figured out what we could do with their genetic information. And so we're at this like tricky time where we're figuring out what to do with a lot of that information as new sea creatures are coming in. And there's there's sort of big fights about it. And that's probably why you're encountering some of that that caginess. But I think where things are at right now, and this is an argument that often comes up with deep sea mining, is that if we sort of like destroy the bottom of the seafloor, if we sort of rip up and destroy the habitat of a lot of these creatures that we haven't discovered yet, that we could be sort of destroying our own medicine chest. So for the big, you know, pandemics that happen in the future, we should preserve those spaces because we actually might find the cure for a lot of those, those pandemics that are coming down the road. <laughs> Laura, this was fantastic. I was so gripped by your stories and <laughs> really felt like I sort of went down to the bottom of the ocean with you. So thank you so much. Next week, we mark Valentine's Day with the return of our listener dispatches. From a fling on a business trip in Toronto to an IRL example of that overused buzzword revenge travel in the Caribbean to trying to outdo an ex and not finding it particularly cathartic. 
It's a fun one. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me on Instagram at Lale Hammer. Our engineers are Jake Loomis and Nick Pittman. The show's mixed by Amar Lal. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfeg talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions and they make you see the scene, but every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.